1: As recently as September 2021, outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel described economic relations between Europe and China as, quote, win-win. Fast forward to April 1st of this year, when the EU's de facto foreign minister, Joseph Burrell, described the then-just-completed EU-China summit as, again, a quote, a dialogue of the deaf." Geopolitics rarely moves at that speed. Admittedly, Merkel may well have been a lagging indicator and Burrell has a bit of a reputation for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, but there can be absolutely no doubt that Europe's view of how to deal with China has suddenly shifted from growing cooperation to strategic competition and even confrontation. Was it the result of American pressure? Did Chinese policy lurch in directions that surprised the Europeans? Was it a byproduct of COVID or the Russian invasion? Andrew Small, who's a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, has some thoughtful answers. He recently published a fascinating book No Limits, the inside story of China's war with the West that details the dramatic ongoing shift in relations between the West, Europe, as well as the United States and China. Welcome Andrew.
2: Thanks very much, delighted to be able to join you today.
1: Let's start with the view from 60,000 feet. Did China suddenly change from partner to rival to threat, or did the West's understanding of what China is up to suddenly change?
2: I think a few things went on simultaneously, and it can actually be quite difficult to disentangle kind of cause and effect in in some of these. Um, Certainly some of the trends that were being seen on the Chinese side under Xi Jinping's leadership had been underway for uh, a number of years. Uh, Certainly um, some of the most kind of dramatic uh, shifts that we saw. Um, I mean, I think the understanding on the European, the US side that we were seeing something that had been kind of a shift from soft authoritarianism um, in the way that the party had operated before to something that started to look a bit more totalitarian um, in scope um, was something that dawned on people over um, over a period of a, of a number of years. Um, but I think the, um, the biggest shifts really were um, how this fused with catch-up that we were seeing on China's part, um, particularly um, in the technological realm, um, where I think um, what China looks like as a much smaller economy, what China looks like as a much less technologically capable power uh, versus what China looks like as something that is closer to a peer competitor uh, is is very different, um, both in terms of its impact on Europe, on on the United States, and globally. Um, And I mean, I trace in the book... Almost this sort of simultaneous point of understanding that was being reached by, on the one hand, the US Department of Defense in its kind of assessment that was essentially that Chinese access to um, kind of open. Uh, uh, markets um, in, in in its capacity to access um, Western technologies was now starting to turn it into a peer competitor in military terms. Um, but simultaneously, you had this shift in the understanding on uh, the German side, among German business, that part of the Western business community that had arguably done the best out of the relationship with with China over the preceding 20 years, that it was also becoming a a peer competitor in the realm of um, advanced economic technologies, that it was um, the the sort of industrial policies that we'd seen in the past, um, the measures that we'd we'd, we'd seen China pursuing were were starting to turn into something that was a threat to the future of the German economic model um, as well. Um, And so certainly without the kind of power proximity um, in these realms. Uh, I don't think you would have had the adjustment just from seeing the political changes that were underway on uh, under this Xi Jinping. And you needed some shocks as well to, to wake people up to that. Um, 5G which I can go, go through in the book was important in Europe but certainly covid and certainly what played out with China Russia really changed the political dynamics in a way that I think people woke up to you know some developments that had actually been underway for for a much longer period of of time but you needed something that was as dramatizing as, as some of these shocks to be able to really shift political views because the, the art on the Chinese side had always been to stay one level below the level of the urgent. It was always the kind of important issue that you could put off in policy terms rather than the thing that you had to deal with uh, immediately. And that that was something that the Chinese officials and the party had been very skilled at um, and I think became much less so in in, in recent years.
1: I want to come back to several points you just made, the Germans on tech in particular. But towards the end of the book, you summarise the case for a fundamental shift in Chinese thinking, and there are four elements to your summary. One is that the CCP is clearer than ever that it is in an ideological war with the West. Secondly, that the CCP is set on Chinese self-reliance. That's an, an aim in and of itself, you argue. Xi Jinping, thirdly, has fundamentally, a fundamentally different assessment of what is China's national interest than the conventional wisdom in the West of what is China's national interest. And fourth, that the Chinese leadership does not think they're making mistakes, uh, even though we all think they're making mistakes. Uh, that I thought that bit was incredibly important in terms of pointing where these things may be going, uh, which is potentially all in the wrong directions. Uh, is that is that your conclusion? That's a,
2: a, a very nice um, summary and a, a, a very good distillation of, of, of some of the, the, the thesis part of, of, of the book. Yes, I mean, I think after the book came out, we have a party congress, 20th party congress, um, which tended to be uh, even more confirmatory of, of, of some of these trends. Um, the I, I, I think, I mean, I highlight simultaneously at the end, there is more of an understanding, I think, as a result of the Russian invasion about uh, how acute some of the vulnerabilities on the Chinese side still are. Um, we've seen that with the recent U.S. export controls um, on advanced node semiconductors. Um, and I think it's still understood on the Chinese side that when it comes to the global financial system, um, vulnerabilities continue to exist for, for, for its companies, which are one of the reasons that um, it's, not in, it, it's not actually as willing to go ahead with um, the the sorts of things it would like to do in the bilateral relationship with with Russia um, at the moment. Um, and it, I think there's an understanding um, as well on the Chinese side that um, it's, it's going to be difficult and a really long time before it's able to get out of um, a position in which these vulnerabilities exist. So there is some kind of, um, there are some mitigating um, factors at, at the moment to the kind of purely um full speed in the wrong direction version of this um i think there's the 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 last year has i think forced um a level of understanding that um you know maybe China to moved too soon. Maybe um, uh, Xi Jinping acted prematurely in in a few of these ways, but there aren't the correction mechanisms that there were that there were in the past. And um, what we'd normally have had at this party congress is simply a change of leader. Um, I think you'd have had um, in 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 ordinary circumstances, this would have been a, an important self correction moment. Um, I think that w- would have been an understanding that said you know, Xi Jinping achieved what he achieved on anti-corruption and making China stand up and and taking a stronger position on a whole series of things. But we need to recalibrate. And I think there would have been still a receptivity to that in, 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 in various corners politically if that had happened. Um, instead, I think the, the, the party is stuck with a whole series of these assessments that, that we've seen on, on, on Xi Jinping's part, um, which are right now... Um, Undercutting um, a, a whole series of the constituent parts of, of China's power position, actually, uh, in in the world. So, I'm, despite what we're seeing in this kind of panicked correction on zero COVID at the moment, for instance, I think in these underlying areas of assessment on on China's part, um, we're not seeing the kinds of self correction mechanisms that you would have had in the past.
1: But quite the opposite, in fact. In you, your argument is that. It seems that your argument is that we're unlikely to see them, uh, that there are fundamental shifts in their thinking, perhaps because G is now going to be around for a while, who knows how long, uh, perhaps because they are now a, and see themselves as a global power, perhaps because they, we maximize what we think are their vulnerabilities and they maximize what they think are our vulnerabilities. Uh, that they're not looking to self-correct. Quite the opposite. They're doubling down on their strategy, it, it seems. And indeed, you, the title of your book, No Limits, uh, conjures up, of course, the, the uh, agreement, the, the communique, rather, between uh, Xi and Putin that talks about they, they would be best friends for life. They, uh, there are no limits to their relationship.
2: I mean, I trace in the book that there was this kind of debate that played out even after the financial crisis, uh, the global financial crisis, that was this question of assertive now or assertive later um, for those in the system that thought actually... The West is weak, more vulnerable, um, uh, ripe for exploitation in a whole series of different ways. Um, now, or the years ahead, are a time to stand up for China's interests differently. We, we we haven't done that uh, in a way that is commensurate with China's power position. Um, we have to reflect on the different power realities that, that now exist, Um and there were those in the system who who thought that this was this, this was moving um, prematurely uh, Xi Jinping was was certainly um, uh, on the side of the move now and the assertive now um, group in the system and and is in a dominant position in this. I think you still see in uh, various bits of the system the the regrets from the people who think that this was ill judged um, but I think you have i mean as you characterized in the the no limits agreement between China and Russia. um, This does have um, a a significantly ideological quality to it. I think there is a sense of being engaged um, in in an ideological struggle um, in in a much more profound way that this concept of struggle has come very much to the fore. I think not that exactly there's a writing off that's taken place on the Chinese side of relations with the West, but I think there is an understanding that, there's a much more adverse set of external conditions um, for, for China, that these dynamics have, have moved in quite a fundamental uh, way and that they're not going to be fixed by some of the approaches that were taken in the past. There's not going to be uh, a way of mollifying uh, the US, uh, Europeans, Japanese or um, the others that have kind of gone through this turn, um, in in their views. So I think there is certainly a sense that um, the strategic contest that's underway is going to stick. Um, and if that's the case, uh, that China needs to embark on that in a more full-throated, um, more committed way, uh, including with other partners and allies. Um, and I think this is, is the part of things on on the dynamic with with Russia as well. China sees coalitions emerging to, to to balance against it, um, it had always been reluctant um, to align as closely with some of the other um, friends, partners and quasi-allies of this sort in, in the past. But I think in the context of this strategic contest, this struggle that it now sees underway, not just with the United States, but in a sense with the Western liberal democratic um, order as a whole, um, that it will be doing more to team up with, cooperate with um, partner with some of these other uh, actors, um, where russia is really on the chinese side understood to be the the, the preeminent um, uh, partner in, in in really complicating picture for um, the Western allies in, in, in dealing with um, not just China, but a whole series of, of, of regions of, of the world. And so in that as well, despite what we've seen in terms of the public positioning on nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons threats and things, I think the assessment on, on Xi's part um, has been the same as for the kind of alliance thinkers on the Chinese side in general, which was Russia is the big prize and it's not going to back away from, from um, what they think they have achieved in that relationship over the last decade.
1: Well, as you point out in the book, there is a long history of a relationship with Pakistan, which is quite different in terms of what you or I might call an alliance. We tend to think of alliances like NATO, uh, like what we're trying to do in South Asia, Southeast Asia, rather, um, as more formal, organized, treaty-based, rules-based, perhaps, coalitions the Chinese seem to be headed in a different direction. As you said, they are cobbling together something we wouldn't typically call it a coalition, uh, but maybe it's a maybe it's the the 21st century version of what we did in the 20th century.
2: I think there are points where we're. Um... Conditioned to think about this just as a mirror of the way that we do things. Um, And that certainly comes to this kind of alliance model question. Um, I think on the Chinese side, the thinking is do not be stuck with some of these treaty commitments, but can you come up with a version of um, how you augment and deepen military intelligence and economic ties with a whole series of different countries that can. Um, uh, augment your power position in the world in a whole series of different ways, and that this is very different from 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 where China was in the past, because it was unnecessary. If China didn't want a global network of military bases, it didn't need partnerships of this nature. There's a different kind of power projection that we're we're now seeing from um, from China, and 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 a different power position that it it finds itself in. And this is still a kind of experimental process. I mean, I I. Go back to Pakistan um in, in this book, partly because it was something that some of the Chinese alliance strategists started holding up as a model. And I'd been going to Pakistan for a number of years, and you know, normally it would be the South Asia people that you'd find showing up there um, for, for for obvious reasons from, from the Chinese side, the South Asia hands. And then you started seeing these kind of wider strategists who you who you normally only saw in the context of you know US China meetings and things and they were really they were there to explore these models and it was this question of what kind of deeper quasi alliance are you able to um, build with with states that still fall short of of, of formal uh, treaty commitments. And Pakistan was one of these cases where, um, of course, they have this very deep historic military and intelligence uh, relationship for um, reasons primarily related to India. But it was something that they were looking at as as, as a model in, in other cases as well. And I think we make the mistake of thinking that because these relationships are not alliances, um, that they can't Profoundly affect the strategic, including military, context in which uh, we're we're operating. Um, The Russia China relationship was misread for a number of years because the limitations and mistrust seemed to be the defining feature of it. And we would keep seeing all these different thresholds crossed between the two sides in terms of what they were doing in the transfer of, of advanced weapons, in the energy relationship, in forms of um, political and diplomatic coordination, um, that were clearly adding up to something different from, from what we'd seen um, in the past. Um, and the No Limits Partnership, to me, was a sort of subset of this wider strategic rebalancing on, on, on the Chinese side um, that, that says in a context of this kind of wider struggle with a liberal democratic coalition, you know, again, preeminently the United States, but not just the United States, um, we will need to work with a whole series of these other actors, some of which they they may have understandably been dismissive of um in in the past it's not the same potency of a coalition that china is able uh, to assemble but it kind of an incredibly complicating um set of uh, implications for u.s policy for the west um in in a whole series of different regions and the russia uh, relationship i think is on the chinese side understood to be a game changer not just in the bilateral piece of it but how it what it does in terms of the handling of third countries as well. I have the the line from uh, Xi um about um, the fact that it's easier to corral a pack of dogs when you have two lions, um, and and I think this this is still the understanding that China is entering an era that is essentially of. Uh, a contest of coalitions, of systems, um, not just a contest um, that's characterized by great power rivalry. And of course, on the Chinese side, it's never been just understood as great power rivalry. Of of course, it's kind of deeply entrenched in Marxian um, thinking to think about these things in something that looks more like system terms. Um, It's something where we collectively had tended to approach these things much more through different lanes, um, separating out trade and economic and technology and security policy in different ways. And it's only been in the last few years that we've started fusing these issues and, and seeing their uh, intertwined relationship in, in a way that I think the Chinese system has just been much more comfortable thinking about these things in, 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 in such terms.
0: If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programmes. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate.
1: I've heard from some of my German friends recently how they really, really think there's still a chance to separate China and Russia. We saw uh, Chancellor Schultz's trip to Beijing recently, uh, The his personal approval of the Hamburg investment, the foreign affairs article that he published, how to avoid a new Cold War in a multipolar era, which is all about back to the future. Um, I'm not sure Germany's Quite on board with this. At least some parts of the German establishment seem to be uh, trying to head in a different direction. Is, is that fair? Do you think
2: it's absolutely fair? Um, I mean, the and and it's not just Germany. If you if you go through Macron's speeches um, on on this subject, I, I think you find something that looks not dissimilar to um, to, to to the kind of language that that, that Scholz has been using, even though the two don't. Particularly get on. Um, but in one way, Schultz and the Chancellery have been a bit more of a, uh, they're at the edge of the German debate now rather than at the center of it. Um, I mean, if, if you look at the opinion shift in German civil society, in German business, um, in German public, mm. um, I think you're in a place where you are in the process of reaching quite a different understanding of, of, of what's at, at stake. And um, And even when it comes to, um, particularly when it comes to to German business, this used to be a dynamic where it was the business community as a whole that was holding out for, for something different. Now we're down to something that looks more like a sort of subset of German businesses. There's still a few extremely exposed companies and and industries that have been the biggest cheerleader for for sort of clinging on to that um, prior model for for the relationship. Um, But I think there is this uh, point, discomfort with describing and characterizing the new realities um, as they are. if there's going to be real diversification away from from China, if there's going to be some of the rebalancing that's required, if there's going to be a let's not repeat the mistakes we made with Russia, with China, then then that's something where you need to bring a a kind of wider political constituency uh, with you. But at the moment there are still corners um, with Schultz and some of the people around him that are quite resistant to the idea that this is um, the case. But um, I, I think the, the positioning that you've seen from from the chancellery and from a few of these um, uh, major German firms, BASF, Siemens, um, the, the uh, Volkswagen. Um, is a reflection of the fact that um, they feel under pressure, they feel that the debate has moved against them, that they that they, they feel that the, the trends are coming out in a very different place. And if you look at the leaked China strategy that came out from, from the, the foreign ministry um, a little earlier this year, that the actual strategy will, will, will emerge um, next year, you see much more acute sense of the the, the kinds of steps that are going to have to be uh, required to be able to, to deal with, with the China for Phenomenon as it is, rather than the one that I think they would uh, wish it to be. But I mean, lastly on this, I think that there are hopes about what China can do vis-a-vis Russia that are also, um, in some cases, they're sold as a sort of geopolitically sophisticated, hard-headed realism. We can, you know, our our biggest security challenge now is Russia, and we can get the Chinese on board. And so maybe we have to um, construct a relationship that makes this possible
1: and and. And, Tinkerbell. I mean, it literally is Tinkerbell. If we just wish hard enough, it'll be, you'll be alive, Tinker. If we just wish hard enough, the Chinese will see the error of their ways in supporting the Russians and solve this silly war. I've, I've had them say that to me literally in, almost in those tours without the Tinkerbell reference. It, yeah.
2: And that's, that, that, that's the problem with this. It's not hard headed or realistic, um, or pragmatic to go into, um, uh, to, to be dealing with China on its relationship with Russia on the assumption that there's anywhere that one can get by way of them putting pressure that will translate into changes in Russian policy on anything. So I, I think it is exactly as you characterize it, I, I think there has been this, uh, that there are still corners in, in Europe that have not fully um, adjusted to the new realities, including ones as important as um, the trans up the road from
1: here. Uh, let's go back to tech just for a moment. You've already mentioned uh, Huawei 5G on the one hand, uh, U.S. chip policy on the other hand. And clearly, tech is incredibly important to whatever future relationships evolve. Uh, Eric Schmidt has argued that, at least in AI, uh, China is now a full-spectrum competitor. Uh, in other sectors, they are probably in the lead Uh Huawei is an example of a pullback uh, or pushback. I don't know if it's push me or pull me. Um, But is it too late to stop the Chinese from becoming a dominant technology player? Um, I mean, I think what you've seen in a couple of these sectors, what's
2: going on with semiconductors now what's gone on uh, in telecoms is that it's not actually too late. I mean, of course, China is going to be a significantly more capable technological power, um, but there are these sectors in which they are well aware of the vulnerabilities that continue to exist, the external dependence that still exists, and the fact that despite having sunk prodigious sums of money um, into, um, for instance, um, advanced semiconductor Design everything they've tried to do with the chip industry. There are still areas in which they significantly lag. Um, and when you go around and do the the map of um, uh, the supply chain things, there are there are areas where the measures that we are now seeing with the new export controls um, for, from October represent a real blow for um, for, for their capacity to, to to put themselves in in a certain place with with ripple effects across the entire um, Chinese technology sector. And and what we saw with with, with Huawei and and, and 5G was that this kind of concerted push on the US side really did shift the balance. I mean, there were internal dynamics in in Europe as well, but you had a juncture um, uh, three years ago um, where three, four years ago where Huawei was pretty much poised to sweep the board um, in in Europe. Um, It was, in a position globally where the number of contracts that it had for uh, 5G um, build-outs uh, were uh, astonishingly expansive to the extent that the few remaining companies, which was you know essentially down to Nokia and Ericsson, the expectation was at least one of those companies would go down in the way that many of the other um, uh, firms that had you know would previously been capable of doing this um, had already been wiped out in the brutal consolidation in that industry um, before. A lot of that consolidation taking place in the context um, of this kind of vicious price competition um, with with Huawei, um, but in in fact, the kind of campaign that the US ran um, uh, in the late stages of the Trump administration, the last couple of years of the Trump administration, was pretty effective um, at at shifting that balance. The map in Europe um, in terms of the the Huawei rollout looks very, very different from from what it was back then. Um, And there is a big difference between having a framework in which Huawei is in a sense the technology supplier, 5G supplier across significant parts of the developing world um, and a version in which it was... Um, going to be underpinning the um, telecoms infrastructure um, of many of the advanced industrial democracies with Europe in particular. Um, They've also, of course, lost uh, India um, in the process of all of this um, as well. And I mean, there are obviously sector by sector answers on, um, you know, where China is on AI on quantum computing on a whole series of these things. And in the round yes china is is in a significantly more capable position than it was. There are areas in which it 's already a power tree. There are areas in which it will it will as it were pull ahead in in some sectors or other um, but I think you know when you look at the kind of cross cutting pieces you know, particularly what we 're seeing with semiconductors, there are still things that can be done on the side of the u s and its partners and allies to slow this down um and and to 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 change what the, the balance of of um, of of china's capabilities um actually looks like I, I think there's not the expectation that they're going to close the gap um in chips in 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 the next few years um for instance um so uh, I, I and and this is why i think there's there's a kind of there's some degree of urgency in in, in some of the decisions that are being taken in 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 a few of these areas, and I think you've seen that urgency. You saw that urgency in five G, and you saw it in, in, in semiconductors. Um, but I, you know this this is not over yet in terms of China's sort of capacity to uh, run the house in 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 some of these areas. And I, I think that's the big concern on the Chinese side right now. In fact, that um, I talked to one Chinese uh, expert quite. Soon after the semiconductor measures were, um, were, were export controls were were, were announced. Who we kind of said, "Well, actually, in the Trump administration, there were all these loopholes, and we could kind of find ways to maneuver around this." But um, this seems to be you know, a much deeper set of measures that is being pursued. I mean, it's clearly closed down not just the um, kind of the first order. Um, uh, pieces of the problem, but second, third, fourth order. How does China manoeuvre around the measures that were we'll put in place? And and and, and so it's. I, and, and I think they're they're, they're aware that um, they're, they're still in a difficult spot on this, which which goes back to this this question of whether they moved too soon in some of these areas when these vulnerabilities still exist and um and, and where they really needed to buy themselves an extra.
1: Let me go to a final question. Completely unfair. Uh, Wendy Sherman, Deputy Secretary of State of the United States State Department, uh, recently used the W word, which is to say she said on the record, war is possible with China. And she she attributed that possibility directly to the fact that Xi Jinping has consolidated his power. That seemed a bit over the top. Uh, I, I gave Burrell a hard time at the start of this conversation. Now, at the end, I would give Wendy the same hard time. Is war possible?
2: I think it's possible I think the question on Taiwan in in I mean there's, there's there's huge kind of analytic battles on this question right now that you see in the US uh, expert community on on this because there's there's obviously been a shift I mean the underlying issue is that Depending on how you choose to date it, twenty twenty-seven or, um, uh, or, or or earlier, um, the, there is a juncture in which there are um, there are uh, there are steps that the Chinese can take, PLA can take that, that they were not capable of before when it comes to an invasion of Taiwan, um, and that's something where if you're only then in the position of of assessing. Um, not can China do this, but does Xi Jinping see fit to do this? Does Xi Jinping think it's, it, it makes sense to do now? Then obviously it creates a much higher level of anxiety about, um, you know, whether there's adequate preparation, um, for these scenarios than, than was the case where PLA capabilities, uh, lagged. Um, there's no intelligence to suggest. At the moment that there's been some marked shift in plans, there are some analytical conclusions that say uh, in light of the other things that we're seeing. Um, In Xi Jinping's decision making, uh, he may decide to do this. But this is a one shot deal for them as well. I mean, if they get this wrong, and they do they act at the wrong moment, uh, then clearly, um, it's potentially uh, regime threatening uh, for them. So I think the balance of risks has certainly moved very markedly. And we see a kind of different approach to risk taking under Xi Jinping than we had perhaps seen with previous leadership. And we see capabilities that are um, that go well beyond what we've seen with previous leadership, and, and that one has to prepare for scenarios in which war uh, is possible. But um, I don't think some of the assessments that say that um, 2027 is a kind of invasion timetable are necessarily borne out by um, uh kind of analysis on, on, on what, we're, what we're seeing in, in, in the decision-making yet on the Chinese
1: side. Well, I'm sure we will talk again before 2027 to see how we're moving. Um, but Andrew, I want to thank you for this conversation. The book, No Limits, The Inside Story of China's War with the West, uh, is in one of, the, it's one of the things that I've been telling people that they have to read, uh, particularly the Europeans. Thanks a lot, Alan.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.